Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We are going to have a conversation with a man who brought us a lot of the news that mattered all year. Breaking stories, CSIS whistleblowers telling us about Chinese interference and democracy and elections. And now we're having an inquiry and then we learn more later. We learn about Iranian interference and we go back to Iran and Russia and China and the concerns we have about them when we came to a new realization in this country. Robert Fife broke so many of these stories and he's still bringing us follow-ups that matter and have changed the way we look at our security here. And as we began the show today, perhaps have changed the way Canada is looked at around the world. I would like to welcome Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. Thanks for being here, Robert. My pleasure, always. You know, it's the time to take a look at the whole year and the importance of the year. And your name just sprung to mind. I, and I can't think of anybody, you and Stephen Chase, breaking all these stories in the Globe and Mail and really driving the headlines. And when you really look at where we are from your first post about the whistleblower and CSIS, we've come a long way, baby, as they say. Uh, Robert, how do you feel? First of all, let's start off where we are right now. And then I, I want to go back on how it all happened, but did you feel that we would get to where we are now when you broke that first story? I mean, how shocking was it all to you? Well, no, I didn't think that we would end up with a public inquiry into foreign interference. The uh, government of uh, Justin Trudeau had always opposed a public inquiry and had largely turned a blind eye to Chinese foreign interference, not just foreign interference, but um, Chinese takeovers of Canadian firms, and also uh, what has been going on in our universities, where China has been um, scooping up, uh, uh, you know, research, uh, high-end research, cutting-edge research from Canadian universities, uh, and, uh, and bringing it back to China. And that w- our first story in in uh, late January was. Uh, a story on how 50 Canadian universities had been cooperating with uh, China's uh, main military uh, university in which uh, we were sharing (laughs) all of our Mm cutting-edge technology that could be used for uh, military purposes in China. And it's astounding, really, when you think about it, that that we were cooperating with China's military university, so they could help them build their military. And but I will say, and to the government's credit or the credit of uh, Innovation Minister uh, uh, Francois Philippe Champagne, he did actually um, crack down on that. It took him a while to do it, but he did do it. And he, all of our, uh, all of our uh, federal financing uh, uh, agencies that finance university research, they're not no longer allowed to uh, duh. Uh, share their intelligence with uh, China's military institution, but all, but a whole range of their military and security institutions, including all, by the way, also Huawei. So um, I think that's one example where journalism has had a major impact because nothing would have been done. The universities like getting the money from China. Uh, the government didn't uh, didn't have the guts to step in, and that's where uh, uh, journalism can come in. And well, obviously, the public. Uh, has been way ahead of the government, and they they knew that this wasn't going to fly with the public once they became aware of it. You know, it's just astounding, dizzying uh, the the amount of naivety that we've had. I mean, are we about to find out more? Let's just whip over to that we have an inquiry right now, and then people are worried and concerned about testifying in it. 
because they think their safety's at risk. Is that another example of where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I'm very glad that we're having a public inquiry into uh, foreign interference. I hope it really does pull back the curtain and uh, is allows Canadians to understand the extent of not just Chinese foreign interference, but also Russian and Iranian uh, and obviously uh indian uh government uh pretend, potentially indian government interference as well this is really important particularly if it involves our election campaigns but you know already with this with the new inquiry uh, there's a lot of concerns whether it's it's actually going to be get to the bottom of it, to the bottom of it because for example the, the the justice who's in charge of it uh, was not going to give standing to the Conservative Party, which, by the way, were the main um, targets of Chinese foreign interference mm-hmm. in the 2019 and 2021 election campaign, but also not standing to the NDP, who one of their own members had been targeted by China, Jenny Kwan. And they they, they, they are going to have intervener status, but they're not going to have uh, standing, which will allow them to uh, cross-examine witnesses and, and see documents that the public would not see, or some documents the public would not see. The government, of course, which is the Liberal Party, gets standing, uh, and they're the ones who have been all along have been trying to do everything they can to block Canadians from knowing to what extent did the Prime Minister's cabinet know about the Chinese foreign interference in the 2019 and 2020 elections, specifically targeting Conservative uh, members of Parliament help the Liberals get elected. That is the crux of whether of, of this um, inquiry, it seems to me, and I'm not sure we're going to get to the bottom of that. Why do you think they're dragging their feet? Well, it's not I a think good it's look. A, it's I think it's very obvious. Um, they, I, I suspect that they <laughs> were very well aware that Chinese and Chinese or, or, or the uh, Chinese government proxies in Vancouver and the GDA uh, did not, and we know from uh, CESA's documents that we saw from uh, Chinese officials saying, well, you know, we want the liberals to win. We're not, we don't think they're great, but we want the liberals to win. They're better than the conservatives. And because the conservatives, you know, had wanted to get rid of the uh, Asian Development Bank, had uh, wanted to set up a foreign agent registry, uh, had been much, had taken, had wanted to ban Huawei, which the government has finally done. But back then, uh, none of these things have been done. And the, and the, and, and so the, from the Chinese government perspective, the liberals were a better bet for them because they weren't, uh, they were, they were going to basically turn a blind eye to a lot of the things that they were doing in this country. And I, I'm not shilling here for the conservatives. I'm just saying that that from the Chinese government perspective, the, the conservatives were more of a threat to them. And there was an effort to, and we know from the CSIS documents from consul generals in Vancouver and in Toronto that there was there was uh, a, a, an effort to uh, defeat conservative MPs. We, in fact, the, the consul general in Vancouver would even bragged about the fact that she they she believed that they helped defeat two conservative MPs in British Columbia. All right. You know, I I wanted to ask you this. We followed along and you joined me a lot as the story was breaking and it was breathtaking. We were on the end of our seat and you were having, you had a whistleblower and you were talking to people within CSIS on the whistleblower writing an opinion piece in your paper. How nervous were they, Bob, about coming forward? You know, what kind of trepidation did they have before as a reporter? They, you know, they they probably confided into you some of their feelings here. What was driving them? Well, uh, they were uh, really upset because a, a lot of the work that they have done in terms of Chinese foreign interference, um, in which they had recordings of Chinese diplomats, in which they followed people to meetings. Uh, they had pretty. They they tried to they had to try to follow the money trail, um, and all of this stuff was being ignored. And they mm-hmm. kept asking themselves, "Why is this stuff being ignored? This this is like this is really serious." They look. They're talking about defeating conservative MPs. They're talking about getting money to to candidates uh, that will be, that they believe to be uh, more sympathetic to the Chinese interest, and. All of this intelligence was going to 
the sixth floor at CISA's headquarters and presumably was being passed on to the, the, the prime minister's office and the Privy Council office, but nothing was happening. So that's the reason why people came forward. And of course, they were, these people were very, very nervous because they would, they'd face criminal charges under the Security and Information Act and they would probably go to jail. So there was a lot of, um, you know, this had to be handled very carefully. And we met individuals not using phones or electronic or computers or anything like that that could in any way uh, allow uh, the RCMP and CISA mm-hmm. to be able to track down the whistleblowers. Were they concerned? I mean, the op-ed piece, it was most extraordinary, you know, as we read and we can feel the breaths and the heart beating of a human being behind this. How how bound and bent were they on coming forward like that? Great risk. And, you know, there was a lot of threatening going on from the government. It wasn't just what they were revealing. It was the fact they were revealing it. Well, the individual who wrote that is a highly principled, uh, obviously highly principled person who has felt very strongly that this intelligence, because it was being ignored by the public, or sorry, by the prime minister's office and the government, that uh, the individual could no longer stay silent, that Canadians had to know what was actually going on. And we did, you know, it was after some conversations with the individual, he and the individual agreed that, you know, he would, they would, they would come forward and write an op-ed, which uh, was really good because it uh, it really uh, strengthened um, the case that we'd been making in the CSIS documents that we'd been reporting on. Because here was a real, real individual yeah. stating the reasons why and making it clear that you know he's not an anti. He's not. This is not. For political reasons, he's not against the Liberal Party. He's not against the Conservatives. And, you know, he's just a, a really concerned Canadian trying to make people aware that there is a very serious threat from China, and it's happening in the Chinese Canadian communities largely. And uh, something, by the way, that the that the Chinese Canadians and, and Uyghurs uh, have been warning about uh, for some time that this had been going on, but largely ignored. And um, it was kind of, it was actually good from my perspective to know that CSIS, frankly, had been taking this stuff seriously because we didn't know they were, whether they were or not. And it was good to know that they had been taking it seriously. But the problem was it was being ignored by the government. And, yeah. and that's why this inquiry is important. Emails Did not they... being read uh, and oh, all, oh, sorts yeah. of, all sorts of things we learned. Well, I'm going well, to let, yeah. yeah. You know, the buck, yeah. buck passing is incredible. I mean, all of this information becomes, uh, as we begin to report it, and we learned that uh, ministers had been warned about this uh, this stuff, and all of a sudden, none of them read their email. That their buck passing is in- incredible. Um, that would be the, that. Those are those should be firing offenses. Yeah, but we're still baffled about that. It comes up in all sorts of the night interviews every day when we talk about the competency of the government. Let me ask you, too. I mean, there's so many blockbusters and they all kind of tie in together. Things we didn't know, interference. And, you know, for Canadians, when you broke the story about the two Michaels, it was I just gasped when I read it because here we have the two Michaels and we learn one of them thinks the other one used his information for intelligence. And again, the word intelligence there coming into it and the gathering of the intelligence and how we use it. Now we've learned more. Well, on the two Michaels, it's a very interesting case because many people have thought there's something more to this case than this arbitrary arrest of these two people. And now we learn, at least from Michael Spavor's position that, and he really was um, like he he had the inside track of what was going on in North Korea, so he was a valuable person to get to know because he'd give you insights. I mean, he you know had cocktails and jet skied with uh, Kim Jong Jung, the the, uh, the dictator of, of North Korea. So he's a valuable asset in a way. Um, but so when he was arrested and charged with passing on information to Michael Kovac, we now understand that. He believes, Mr. Spiver believes that 
um, that the sharing he didn't he did not know that uh, that as a as a global security reporting officer with the global affairs that that all of the intelligence that Mister or information that Mister Covert picked up that was shared with CSIS and the Five Eyes intelligence spy services, and he believes in a, he's about to sue the government mm-hmm. that uh, he got picked up because China somehow found out that this stuff was being shared with spy services in the Five Eyes community. And we now know that uh, uh, the Garretts, who had been arrested in 2014, and uh, were were released, he also had talked to uh, a GSRP uh, diplomat himself. And and this intelligence, of course, is, is, is shared, and the government admits it is shared with CSIS and Five Eyes. He... He wonders now, like, did they pick me up because I was talking to this person? And he said, if I'd known that if if the person had told me, hey, I'm going to share this stuff with CSIS and mm-hmm. Five Eyes, that I wouldn't have talked to him. And I think that, you know, leaving aside whether, you know, they, they say it's not a spy service and they don't recruit and they don't pay and, and all that's that's fine. But they do have an obligation, it seems to me, to tell people, hey, I'm talking to you, and you know I'm a Canadian diplomat, so obviously stuff's going to be shared with the government. But you should also know that what I say, what you share with me is going to be shared with CSIS and the Five Eyes intelligence community. That might make people think twice about whether they want to talk to them. And their own safety. Because if they're in countries like China, that's a dangerous place to be. Mm. And it's the same thing as you and I as journalists. I mean, I can't. I, it would be highly immoral for me to talk to somebody and not identify myself as a journalist and then go write a story and the mm-hmm. guy goes or a person would go, hey, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that person was a journalist. Mm-hmm. Now it's in the front page of the newspaper. I mean, that's unethical. It is unethical. And we're learning more and then we're questioning the whole way it operates. You see, it's been uh, Bob Fife's world here this year. And we are questioning. And that whole thing has been busted open. Again, things we didn't know as Canadians. Absolutely. And, you know, we pull back the veil of secrecy to some extent. There's still a lot we need to know. That's why I really hope that this inquiry is going to um let some sunshine in and, you know, get to the bottom of the kind of issues we've been raising. We didn't get it from, uh, was a whitewash from Donald, uh, from uh, David Johnson's report uh, when he was special rapporteur for the government, which is exactly what they wanted. Um, and we'll, we'll see whether this uh, inquiry uh, it gives us a serious and a look at, at what has been unfolding in this country and how our spy services and government have been handling it. Because having having countries interfere in our elections campaign is a no-no. Our prime minister stands up and shocks the nation, stands up in Ottawa and says he has information that the government of India was involved in the assassination of a Canadian citizen. Again, I gas the whole country gas. And it turns out you were involved in that, making a call, having the story and giving them a little bit of time. And now we're still debating, aren't we? Why he he's still getting criticism for coming forward. But now we learn more, way more. We have the indictment in the United States of a would-be assassin tied into our assassin. I mean, this is like a movie, only it's real. Yes, and it's very serious. We do. I mean, yeah, India is a democracy. It's been a longtime friend of Canada. Um, the fact that they would be um, somebody in the Indian government would be involved in uh, allowing, going ahead with an assassination in, in Canada. In fact, there were three other people they wanted to assassinate too, and they tried to get they were they tried to get that uh, in the United States, but uh, the Americans caught on to it right away and. Presumably, they warned Canada, um, but, you know, the Americans managed to arrest the person and stop the assassination. Um, we know that CSIS, uh, or sorry, C- uh, yeah, CSIS did warn um, uh, R.G. Singh uh, Najjar that he, w- he was potentially going to be assassinated as well as the three others. But for some reason, uh, they guess they didn't provide any protection and he got killed. So. And the difference, of course, again, is 
uh, the Americans have arrested somebody and we still haven't arrested anybody. No, killed and the person people. didn't get killed. It was the war. Right. Right. So we say, how did this happen? Did you have any idea about the American connection when you were reporting the Canadian? Assessment? No, I didn't. Oh, no, I, I mean, I suspected the Americans were involved in telling us um, just because, uh, you know, because of the they have such a great uh, the national security agency can pick up all kinds of conversations. Right. So I suspected there might have been American involvement in this, um, but I didn't know anything about that. No video of the body or a picture of the slump body yeah. of the the Canadian assassination. Now we, you know, the prime minister took a lot of heat for it. We talked, it brought up where we are in the world, bad feelings with India, as you just said, it's a democracy, but it's also seen as a way around the power of China, which we've just been talking about. So things are getting very complicated here, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, look, the Americans have have gone to uh, uh, the Prime Minister Modi and said, "Look, we want cooperation in finding out and who what who was the Indian government official who was responsible for this attempt uh, to kill um, a U.S. citizen." And um, they they say they've set up an inquiry; they're looking into it. But at the same time, the Americans are just finished going to India and talking about how you know, the importance of the relationship and we've got to keep working with you because for a number of reasons, obviously it's the counterweight to China and yeah. it's also the world's fastest growing economy and the world's largest population, 1.4 billion. So the Americans want India to stop doing this kind of stuff, but they don't want to uh, destroy relations with them. And here in Canada, the, the Indians are, are that inquiry they're looking into there. It doesn't involve what happened here in Canada. And they continue to say, Oh, well, you never showed us any intelligence on this. We, we, give us the proof. And you haven't given us any proof. And we're so the hell with you, Canada. So it's not a it just shows you the Americans have a obviously it's a huge superpower. Yeah, and more it power. has an impact and the Indians really couldn't care less about Canada. It also brings up again safety and we feel insecure with your story about CSIS. We wondered what was happening with Chinese interference and Canadians and their safety. And now we have others. We have the war in Israel, Hamas. We don't know if it's that or it's Russia or anything, but people are speaking out here. Are they being taken care of? We do know as we speak, Irvin Koffler is under a 24-hour guard. Things are getting a bit crazy here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, look, he's a legendary champion of human rights globally and uh, has been outspoken against Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah. And so, and given what's happened in the, the war in Israel, he is suddenly being targeted as a great concern. He's a, also a Jewish Canadian, as you know, former justice minister. That's uh, a very disturbing that somebody like him would be targeted. Uh, we think it's probably Iran that targeted him, um, but we are not 100% sure of that. And then we get back to Russia and Iran and China. There, It has created a feeling of unease here in Canada. And as we've said several times in this interview, we needed to know it's important stuff. Do you think Canadians care about this? You know, there's always the thing in politics, oh, we, um, Canadians never vote on foreign affairs. But it has created a feeling that things are not being taken care of, things that Canadians just assumed that they were safe on. Yeah, I think Canadians are paying more attention to it. I mean, it's true they, they're going to vote on bread and butter issues, not on foreign affairs. But I think Canadians are concerned about the fact that we seem to have lost our way in the world, that we're not taken seriously anymore. You know, um, we're not, at, Canada's not asked to join in it, like the Quad or the ARCUS, the US, Australia, Britain um, pact on mm -hmm. ourselves, but it involves more than that. Um, you know, the, 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 we our military has been allowed to be depleted, and that's one another reason why, you know, nobody takes us seriously. Uh, so, you know, we talk. We virtual signal all the time, but when it comes for us to put some money on the table, they look around. Oh, they're in the bathroom. Canada's in the bathroom. Yeah, uh, it, you know that, and it's it it is having a real effect on the on the, the uh, reputation of this country. Well, how do you feel? I mean, I just want to ask you: when you call, people must be terrified when they say 
Robert Fife is on the line. I've heard that from people. And even now, you know, you, uh, you've got to start a few trembling toes with those uh, phone calls or those emails, actually. Yeah, some people, yeah, I, it's true. People are nervous. <laughs> I can't deny that. <laughs> no, <laughs> because you're but, feeling empowered. And... Uh, no, no, that's not the way I operate. But, uh, you know, look, uh, I always tell people, if you've got nothing to hide, then don't be worried. You know? Good advice. And congratulations on a stellar year. Thank, thank you, you very for, much. And thank you for your wonderful journalism and it's, uh, I'll give you the Arlene Bynan Award if that means anything. Thank you, Connie. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. It's no big surprise. We might have overestimated how the world looks upon us. And it was about a week ago, I saw a piece in the Financial Times, and we're, we're about to talk about it. And they don't, you know, always include Canada and stuff. It was this whole thing about how we weren't who we thought we were. I could not believe it. So all the things, you know, if you're feeling that way and go, well, you know, we we feel that things are working and maybe we left out of this agreement and that agreement and that agreement, you're not alone. It is it is real. And maybe part of it too, which is something that I have felt for so very long, as Canadians, we were really chuffed with ourselves when maybe we shouldn't have been about all this stuff. It takes work. And the reason we enjoyed and had reputations is because we worked at it. We did stuff. You know, Canada's back and we're peacekeepers. Everybody wore it around and just thought, oh, well, you know, I'm going to travel to another country. They're going to hear I'm Canadian. They're just going to think I'm fabulous and so nice and all of that. Well, not really. We're fighting for stuff right now. We're being left out. We've got we've to take our place in this changing world. And I do not think that we're doing it. We're going to just see how that is playing out, what evidence there is out there. Jonathan Berkshire Miller joining us live, international affairs professional with expertise on security, defense, and geoeconomic issues in the Indo-Pacific. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, it's so great to have you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be back on. I'm really glad to have you on this topic, and it's something that has meant a lot to me. It's been growing and growing, and many Canadians feeling this way. Who are we? Where are we? What's our place in the world? And then I know you were quoted in that Financial Times article, because as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, my God, other people are noticing it, saying Canada used to be kind of separated from all these geopolitical events. Not so now. Jonathan, it's kind of a sign, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So, I mean, just a little bit of context on this uh, for your listeners as well. So, you know, the, the piece you're referring to is a piece in the Financial Times, which is a large uh, UK-based publication. And the idea that Canada would figure, uh, this is their, their what they call the big read, so they put it out on the weekend. And Canada rarely ever figures on on their attention span or any of the big uh, international news media. Uh, but I think it's a sign, um, the things that have been happening lately, whether it's, of course, uh, China's interference in our in our liberal institutions, in our elections, the detaining of our, detaining of our citizens, of course, the India uh, saga that we're facing now, and more broadly, just, uh, you know, our lack of, of credit ability on the international stage has now caught significant international attention. So I agree with you. It's um, it's a sign of the times and an unfortunate sign of the times of, of where Canada's stock is right now in the world. It, it really is. And it is uh, a dubious honor, maybe it's a dubious honor in a lot of ways here. <laughs> are we up for it? And also, are we who we thought we were? And that's the thing that kind of struck me. You know, all, all the things we're wondering is, is gee whiz, all the things we took for granted as all those stories, Chinese interference. Interference, Iran, India, all of this. And we wonder and say, were we kind of full of ourselves, Jonathan? Is this a wake-up call here for Canada? Yeah, well, I think, Arlene, you have to go back even a little bit further. And, you know, I remember this. Uh, I'm old enough to remember anyways when I was a growing up is seeing the heritage commercials, for example, on television. And mm-hmm. you probably remember a lot of the different yeah. ones like the peach baskets and, <laughs> and all the, all the different ones. But the one I, I like to refer to on the international affairs side is, uh, is on peacekeeping. 
And uh, I remember being one where um, a Canadian peacekeeper with the United Nations was standing in between two conflicting parties and, and was sort of saying, this is the United Nations and I'm Canadian and, uh, you know, go to your uh, respective corners and don't don't fight. And of course, both sides dutifully went back to their corners and, and the conflict was resolved. And the reason I reference this is that I think this mythology that we we have about, number one, the past, about Canada being this honest broker, this middle power, this, you know, in-between state that can sort of resolve global tensions. I would argue even the 50s and the 60s and the 70s weren't like that we, we depicted them. Uh, they were much more uh, uh, difficult and and hard interests were there then, but they're definitely there now and, and an even more acute level. So I think... We have to get over this sense that, number one, we are not in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And number two, uh, the world is shifting in some very dark ways. Uh, we see this, of course, with uh, the strategic rise of China. We see this with Russia's unjustified invasion in Ukraine. Uh, and we need to wake up. We need to wake up to the reality that uh, it, everything is not uh, you know, seen in rose-tinted glasses. And uh, there are a lot of countries that are out to, to harm us in our interests. You know, we had the uh, the stunning announcement in the fall by the prime minister that, that there was evidence, he said, that India was involved in assassination of a Canadian citizen. And we know after the indictment, and we learned so much even last week, even more about that indictment in the United States. There were pictures of the body here in Canada tie in there. So there's validity to that. So, But then we see that America, we can just use this as a little snapshot of power and where we are. Are, America has India's attention and they've launched an investigation. The Prime Minister was up for a lot of ridicule when he announced that, Jonathan. Yeah, I think a lot of it goes to number one, of course, power status, as you mentioned, you know, the United States, uh, frankly, is much more uh, influential and important to 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 India. And I think that shows. Um, but number two, I think it goes down to the articulation of the way you you conduct yourself. So the way that the Americans conducted themselves, I would say, was very professional in this sense. They had a legal investigation that they let uh, go through the process. Um, uh, and it's pretty damning with some of the things we see in the indictment. And it's being addressed, um, you know, at public levels, but definitely at private levels. I think our approach was very different. Uh, we still have an active investigation that is not finalized, even if uh, it is, if the signs and the intelligence does look very ominous. Uh, yet the prime minister decided to go out uh, in front of parliament uh, just because a newspaper had an article, uh, you know, allegedly with uh, with a leak of this story. So I think this articulation, the way that we went about it, really, um, you know, I don't have a better way to say, it, but really pissed off the Indians. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and. This is uh, the result of it. So I think that we should rethink. It's not to say that we don't, you know, take India to task uh, if they did commit these issues, this uh, allegation. But I think we have to think about the way that we approach these things. It's true. And then we have the the vision of Xi with Trudeau and giving him a, a dressing down, saying he leaked part of a conversation. As you say, is it the way we behave or are we looking for things now where they were covered up before? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's a way that we can conduct ourselves that we, uh, you know, very fiercely protect our interests, further our interests, and values are a part of that, too. Um, but we also don't look like the, you know, the condescending Simon coming in there and basically walking into the room and saying, you know, your house uh, needs a renovation. I mean, basically, you don't go into other people's houses and consistently tell them uh, what's wrong with it. It doesn't mean that you you don't challenge things that are against your interests. But I think the point I'm, I'm raising here is that we've seen this consistently, especially with this government, is a very sort of condescending lack of empathy uh, towards many countries in the world with much longer histories, uh, you know, much larger populations um, than Canada. So it's we have to couch that. It's not going to be a successful way to conduct ourselves internationally. And we have to find a way to um, to still uphold what we care about, but but drop the, the condescension. All right. What about the attitude for not just this government, other ones? Is this a long time coming? You know, you're quoted in the Financial Times piece that for a really long time, our country has treated foreign relations as kind of a luxury. We didn't pay any attention to. We're always told in election campaigns, Canadians couldn't care. And that's probably true. But they're caring about what they're hearing now because they they feel our place in the world. And also our security is not what we thought it was. 
Yeah, I think it hits on a really good point. So, I mean, of course, the government of the day always gets the most criticism, but I mean, this has been a, a slow burner, and I think that's the best way to describe it. I mean, this has not been something that is one uh, administration's problem, I think, for several years. And, you know, the context, of course, is that we're in North America. We have one neighbor outside of the three oceans that surround us. It's the United States. And while there's challenges in that relationship, we benefit enormously economically and in security terms because of our geography. Um, but what we're realizing in the globalized world uh, with trade and with uh, security issues, uh, with the Internet and, and technology is that we can't, you know, I think as one person referenced in this uh, Financial Times article, we don't live in a fireproof house. I mean, we don't live in this <laughs> fortress mentality where these things that happen internationally don't affect us. So what I think we really need is 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 some leadership on it, frankly. We need at the top for Canadian leaders to start talking about global issues as not as they're something that we could do or we should do, but we really must do because it affects the lives and the prosperity of Canadians just as much as it affects the lives of our of our allies. They do in other countries. They do in 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 Britain, they do in America. The president will go to the people about international affairs. Jonathan, you know, are we ready for it? Are we up for the task here? Or is that luxury also something that we carry around that we don't even know what to do? Well, I think the interesting thing is, I mean, you could have went, you know, several years back, I mean, even before Russia's reinvasion of Ukraine, um, and you could have argued, not only is it not a political benefit, uh, you know, to to talk about foreign affairs or defense or security, but it's actually a risk. Um, the interesting thing that's happening, and I think you're seeing a lot of polling data supporting this, is that Canadians are not oblivious to what's happening. I mean, they, they understand the world is shifting and, and changing. There's been some interesting polls after Russia's war in Ukraine. Ukraine that Canadians support a much more robust defense, um, uh, you know, program in, in Canada, which is we've been laggards for several years. So I guess my point is that Canadians are getting the memo. They understand. Um, they don't need to necessarily be uh, educated on these issues. Uh, I think this is where leadership comes in, is that an understanding of it's one thing. But as a leader, you need to guide that um, that understanding and say, look, um, you know, there's things that Canada must step up on. And that that's frankly where, where we're, we're, you know, missing right now in action is that someone needs to take the mantle and say, whether it's a, you know, primetime televised address, as you mentioned, the Americans do frequently and, and have a discussion, like a fireside chat with Canadians about what's happening in the world and why we can't uh, just sit by and, and sit on our laurels. And it's not black and white. It's gray. You need a deft hand. We have economic ties. You know, the the problem that we're having with India right now is India is seen as a solution, a way around China. But yet we're also having problems with China. And then we just saw Biden and Xi kind of make up a little bit and agree to keep together in a lot of ways. And economically, we know how important it is. So the money and trade and our economic ties is really gaining a lot of new importance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be difficult for us to engage uh, on these issues with a, basically a third of the world's population just saying, with China and India, uh, saying that, well, you know, sorry, we forget we'll, it. We have issues and problems with you. I mean, we we will need to to find ways to engage with them um, and call out call them out when when necessary. Finally, I, I want to ask you: Are we in danger here? You know, is this? A, we just talked about a wake up call again. Is it a luxury to say we might even have a little bit of time here? The world is changing every moment. Every time we look around, all this stuff is just on fire. It's it's happening in other countries and it's spilling into our streets. It's it seems that it's again that word luxury comes up. It's not just about international politics. It's about what happens here because we have a lot of allegations of international affairs that we seen as an easy target. It affects our security. Yeah, that's a really good framing. I mean, I think I've heard others say that we're an easy mark. Um, and when you um, when you think about old school security and conflict, people worried about, of course, armies, you know, marching over borders. Tragically, like what we're seeing with the, with Russia and Ukraine. 
Um, but that's, again, not the that could be a challenge. And I think Canada is much more protected in that sense because of geography and because of the United States. But the threats that we see don't respect those borders. I mean, they're, as I said, they're in the cyber domain. They're in transnational repression. Um, the, the weaponization of diaspora communities, I think, uh, is happening a lot in Canada. We've seen that, of course, uh, in the Chinese case. We've seen that um, in the Indian case and, other, and elsewhere, in the Iranian case. Um, so we have to realize that, um, you know, we may not be interested in the world, but the world is interested in us. Um, and they find ways and vulnerabilities in our open society uh, to, 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 to widen those cracks. So I think that's why we have to see this, not in the traditional sense, not in the idea that is China going to send an armada of ships to invade Canada um, or Russia in the Arctic? Um, and rather, okay, what are these non-traditional threats um, that are already here? Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We are still waiting uh, for an addition to the Blue Jays team here as a country and no word yet. No word. A lot of people with Otani hangovers and they deserve them and I hope they enjoyed themselves. Uh, We are going to get some more information. It's a big week for the media and things that play out in the media. Michael Geist is joining us, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. Michael, happy Saturday to you. Oh, uh, hi, thanks for having me. Actually, I, I think I just saw that Otani may have uh, posted on his Instagram that he's signing with the Dodgers. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, the hope for healing and joy. Thank you. I bet you didn't know you would be bringing that to us, but thank you, Michael. I've been checking in all the all the breaks there, so I missed it. All right, so we have no hope. Let's find our own joy here. Michael, let's start with the medium, Bill C-11. You've been just laser-focused on this and appeared before the CRTC. And I thought it was fascinating as following the hearing and, and seeing some of the clips of it, and, our, and I... I think finally this story may be resonating with Canadians. They're making their own choices. They're saying, I want to do this, that, and the other. And this bill is is attempting uh, to put some, lay down the law in all of those things. What did you think about the hearings? The CRTC? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting experience. Did they accomplish what you thought? Sorry? Did they accomplish what you thought? It was my first time appearing before the commission, and I have to say that, you know, this felt a lot like just a race for a cash grab with the desire to various entities looking for Internet streamers to provide them with funding. And one of my real concerns was that the concerns of individuals, of of Canadians, of of the viewing public seem often to be lost in the conversation. And how... And how would you bring them to the conversations here? Because some of the things that I I watched, and I know this is part of your message as well, is what do people want? <laughs> what do consumers want? Are people just entitled to continue to do the same things? What's at stake here, Michael, when you say it should be more about the consumers? Yeah, well, I mean, there's two elements here. There's the issue of the prospect of the CRTC engaging in regulating user content. And They've largely tried to take that off the table, at least for now. So, listen, the government says that's not really what they were interested in. There's a policy direction to that effect. And I guess we'll have to see how this plays out. Some of those bigger questions around, for example, regulating algorithms and discoverability are yet to come. At the moment, this particular hearing was focused almost exclusively on the, on the issue of some interim payments, what, what streamers would have to pay 
into the system. The idea being that even before they sort out all these other issues, move ahead with forcing them to pay certain things. And, you know, the, the perspective I brought when I appeared before the commission was, I listen, I, I recognize that, that there are many who would like to see some of those payments, but this is not risk-free. That If you require payments that are significant, indeed ones that are in excess of what you find in many other places. There was a risk of market exit, with some streamers leaving the country, um, a risk of some deciding not to enter Canada at all, not providing services given some of those extra costs, or that at the end of the day, it would be consumers that would face increased costs, and that it was important for the CRTC to consider those factors as it, as it progresses. It is, and we heard from a lot of people in the media, and then, you know, also there was a, a little bit of a peek on how this new media could work. I thought it, it, it looked like that there was a, a kind of an explanation of a, a new scenario that would be happening here. And we're also talking, as you just said, about you know, bias in the media and paying the media and all all those things. And plus, we started off the week, Michael, with all those layoffs at the CBC, all these things kind of coming together and adding extra meaning, I think, a little bit at those hearings. Yeah, I, there was a little bit, there was some on those media issues, it's true, uh, in part because some of those same media companies are hoping to get the, the CRTC to also require payments uh, in support of mm-hmm. the news. Not the print in this case, but this would be support for the broadcasters who, it should be noted, already stand to be one of the big beneficiaries coming out of Bill C-18, legislation that deals with news. They'd, they'd in a sense, almost like to double dip here and get some money coming out of Bill C-11, hoping that, you know, essentially companies like Netflix and Amazon would provide new funding for in support of the news on services like Bell. And the idea that you'd have a video service, entertainment service like Netflix, having to pay to support large wireless company because it's engaged in some of the news production, at least for me, struck me as pretty disconnected in that uh, this kind of cross-subsidy model isn't really the best way to deal with these kinds of issues. It is, you know, we're we're looking at everything in kind of a, a new way, and the hearings. I thought they, you know, they did hear from a wide selection of Canadians. You kind of think that consumers should be more part of it. How would you make consumers more part of all of this? Well, I think that the I, I think there's a couple of elements there. One, I, I think the CRTC itself has to make sure that it is hearing from a broader range of of consumer interests. And, you know, I spoke to it. There were a few other witnesses that did, but for the most part, it was very much a minority perspective. And some, I have to say, some of the CRTC commissioners came across almost as if if they were surprised that this should be an issue that they should be focused on. You had uh, the vice chair of broadcasting say that the CRTC operates in the public interest, which she defined as ensuring support for creators and artists. And she was reminded by the witness that Actually, what about the viewers here in terms of the public interest? And it was almost as if that caught her by surprise. So I think part of this is that you know, we need to see the CRTC, the commissioners involved in these decisions, to view at least a, a part of their mandate as ultimately operating on behalf of individual Canadians. You know, the point I made actually was that if you don't have viewers, if Canadians aren't there, you don't have a broadcasting system. I think it has to start with the public. and. It was, from my perspective, a bit discouraging to hear that that wasn't necessarily the view that's shared by some in decision-making positions. It is. It's been, you know, I've been in this business uh, quite a long time, and the CRTC has always been such a factor, and, and radio stations have always struggled from them, these legacy radio stations, because we had to play music that was CanCon, we had to have Canadian content. And I think you're right. I mean, the whole... The whole reason that the CRTC is there is also kind of changing and maybe coming into a new light, don't you think? Well, I think it does play, uh, obviously, an expanded role. I mean, the, the outcome of C11 and C18, the Online Streaming Act and the Online News Act, is that the CRTC is is now positioned to address far more. It's now not just about conventional broadcast and broadcast distributors like cable and satellite companies, but now also plays a pretty big role with the internet. And, you know, I think that that represents 
very significant change. I, in fact, you know, interestingly, it's interesting you raise this. During mm-hmm. one of the exchanges I had with the commissioner, they said, you know, some of the things you are saying would would be a departure from how we've all, how we've always done it. And I think my response was something along the lines of, I I thought we're already at the departure gate. I, I thought that we're already at a space where the commission is rethinking a lot of the ways that it has traditionally done things because its mandate has changed so much. Um, and I w- I would be very concerned if. You know, the only kinds of changes we saw was, was essentially an attempt to to bring the internet into this sort of payment type system that it becomes mm-hmm. just about the subsidies as opposed to rethinking many of the more core elements of, of what broadcasting means in the way that the legislation has has kind of pushed us toward. I mean, you want, you know, we're about to take a break, but the CBC and the the firings and all the reality biting at the CBC on Monday, that was kind of an explosion of exactly what you just said. I mean, it's changed and you can say it's not right or we're going to squish it over here or add payment or whatever. The fact of the matter is it's all changed. It is changing. And I think... I think what we what we ought to be looking for, as, as we talk about sort of coming out of this first set of hearings, is just how much is the CRTC open open to change? You know, are they do they look at this as just a new source of funding, almost like a policy ATM, where they can do new withdrawals in support of some of their longstanding uh, areas that they'd like to support their policy objectives, or are we going to see more of a fundamental rethink about? You know how we support, about what the priorities are, about who gets the support. You know, and that that will involve a lot of conversations about what CanCon means, about who benefits, about what it means to provide support beyond just cutting a check. Um, it remains to be seen whether the CRTC is really open to having those conversations. Michael, I wanted to touch base with you on, because I know you've been up front and center watching this on disturbing things we're seeing and reporting and talking about the media and institutions. We're seeing a lot of anti-Semitism. We're seeing it at institutions like Harvard in the United States. We've seen the menorah lighting coming into politics this week all across the country. It is quite a sight to see. It is. And just quickly on Otani, $700 million over two years. Um, unbelievable. Um, we almost Rock, made it, Rock, though. My, yeah, my the Rogers Blue Jays had... My Rogers almost. bills are high enough <laughs> with, without having to pay almost a billion dollars for one player. Um, in any event... Yeah, wait a um, moment. Uh, you know, on, on this issue, uh, which is clearly much more serious and source of concern, it, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm, I'm the grandson of Holocaust survivors, never in a million years. But I envision that we would see what we've been seeing in Canada and, uh, of course, in other countries. The the hearings that we saw in the United States this week with U.S. presidents unable to unequivocally state that uh, calls for Jewish genocide would, would constitute a violation of, of codes within those schools. And as you note, the, the, the politicization of, of menorah lighting, whether that's the Calgary mayor refusing to uh, to appear, the controversy in Moncton that we saw, and even now reports in the University of Alberta's law school where um, when a student raised the question whether a menorah might be displayed, the decision was taken to remove everything. They removed Christmas trees and said no to the menorah also. And um, th- these are, are dark times when, when you see that take place. And I never, as I say, never thought I'd see this in Canada. And there's a desperate need for Canadians to speak out strongly against the kind of anti-Semitism that we are now seeing uh, in communities across the country. What about, you know, I raised um, the intersection of leadership with this. I mean, is this a test that we've never really had before? And it's a darn good one. It is. I think you're right. You know, there was, I think in some of the, when there were initial concerns, and certainly those coming out of the Jewish community, you know, are, are in sense almost on guard given the, the long history of anti-Semitism, and could see some of this starting to emerge. I think quite quickly, uh, but it has only grown. And some of the initial responses that I thought we saw from some leaders, which was to really almost two sides it to talk about not just anti-Semitism but other forms of hate. And to be clear, 
all forms of hate, whether it's anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, Islamophobia or other forms of hate, uh, need to be uh, strongly condemned and we need to stand up against it all. But we need to recognize as well, I think, especially with what we've seen, that it is anti-Semitism that has been the direct target overwhelmingly over the last number of weeks with shots at schools and firebombs targeted towards community centers. This is, and, and you know, political leaders initially saying this isn't Canada. It is Canada. It is what we are experiencing. There is genuine fear around these issues. And we desperately need leaders to stand up. We need law enforcement to take action where there are violations. And we need to have communities stand strongly on, on these issues. And there has, I think, to date, uh, been in many times too much silence. And that silence is, is deafening. And I think it's been a wake-up call for many who are discouraged that that's, in fact, the case. We have breaking news. Otani has made his decision, and he wasn't on that plane. Is not going to be on the plane. $700 million took it. And he is off to the United States of America, turning us down and heading to the Dodgers. All right, we are going to continue as we were, you know, tapping the the emotion of the country here as we come to grips with this. And we're going to follow the story because it was a moment of hope. It was a moment of time. Mark Colley, sports reporter with the Toronto Star, joining us live. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? That's the one of the few sports stories had. That's how you have to start it off. Yeah, yeah. It certainly headed south compared to what people were expecting about this time yesterday when everyone thought Shoei Otani was on a plane on his way to Toronto. And I mean, instead, $700 million with the Los Angeles Dodgers. It is a 700 mil. What does the money say? What's the the message here? I mean, we're all kind of deflated is the word, really. You sound deflated, may, may I say. <laughs> yeah, you don't I mean, sound I think the money jubilant. is the first thing that jumps out, even to people who have been following this all the way through, because the expectation kind of was always $500 million or more. The number $600 million had been bounced around a little bit, but $700 million was kind of out of the equation as far as I'm concerned, I think as far as a lot of people were expecting. So I think that's kind of the biggest surprise is just we knew Shohei Otani was so valuable. We knew he was going to command the biggest pro contract in North American sports history, but $700 million, I think, is more than anyone was expecting. And you have to think in Canadian dollars, that's about 950 million. So you're talking almost a billion dollars for one player. So I think that's kind of what the money says is just, we knew this guy was incredibly valuable to a team, both on the field and off the field, but $700 million really tells you a lot about just how much he is worth. It really tells you, it really moves the story, doesn't it? I mean, look at the incredible interest he has garnered. And we're going back into icons and Babe Ruth and all of it. He had it all. He could do it all. What's that figure done to the game? Because once you, once you hit a number like that, we've all learned things are never the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it's changed things in some ways, but it hasn't in other ways. Cause like, Shoei Otani, I mean, you bring up the Babe Ruth comparison. There is no other player in baseball history like Shoei Otani. So while you can look at the $700 million as sort of a precedent to say uh, other players are going to be getting this much, it's raised the bar on how much a star player deserves or will get on the free agent market. You can also say there's never been a player like Otani before. There probably never will be again. And so $700 million might not be happening for anyone else. You know, the next big free agent to hit the market probably won't be getting that amount of money. I can pretty much guarantee you won't be getting that amount of money because there is no other player on the face of the planet like Shoei Otani. Oh, let's talk a little bit about the Blue Jays. They they shifted up. They had big bucks. What happens now? We know that money is possible. What's it done to the expectations for the Jays here? Yeah, there was always this desire for them to do something huge this offseason. I mean, the disappointment of not just 
last season, getting swept in the playoffs. But the fact that they've been swept in the first round of the playoffs three out of the last four years, uh, and then the frustration with what happened after the season, with the way the decisions the Blue Jays made in their wildcard games were handled and viewed and explained by team management. There was a lot of frustration with the team, and so there was this sort of sense of urgency that they need to do something big and they need to do it now. And the Otani deal was going to be that, but once you kind of have the expectation set there, again, the best player potentially ever in the conversation, some people would say he's one of the best players ever. And so when you have your expectations there, any other player that may have been on that list of people Blue Jay fans wanted. I mean, Cody Bellinger is probably the biggest name. He's an outfielder, just played with the Cubs, and is expected to get a sizable deal, maybe north of $200 million. Uh, When someone like that is on the market now, that's the alternative to Shohei Otani. It's bound to be a huge disappointment, even though he will help the team if he came here. Uh, Cody Bellinger would be uh, a very strong acquisition. I'm sure a lot of people would be happy. But once your expectations are set at uh, the best player in baseball, the most recognizable face in sports, potentially on the planet, uh, anything else is going to be a letdown. Yeah, it's just not going to do. It's not going to do. Mark, thank you. It was great. It was great that we had you on. Thank you. Mark Cauley, sports reporter with the Toronto Star. Crying your beer, Mark. Thank you. All right. We are going to continue with this as we come to grits with what's happening here. I want to welcome um, Moshi Landers joining us live, sports economist from Concordia University. Moshi, how are you doing? How are you coping? Coping? I'm thrilled. I'm not a Jays fan, so good that he's not coming to Toronto. <laughs> we... <laughs> More heartbreak for Jays fans, so it's celebration for me. Oh, it's celebration. We're all, you know, we're we're such sad sacks now here. Are you? I mean, I know we were we were making news just how we were reacting. Were we too desperate out there? Do you think, Moshi? You, you know what? I, I will say that the the Jays dodged a bullet here. Seven hundred million dollars is a lot of money. And where Mark was on a couple of minutes ago saying that he is a unicorn, yeah. he is a once in a lifetime, once in a century player. That's true. Uh, but for that type of money, it's, it's not a guarantee that uh, the Jays would win a World Series with him. Uh, and all it's going to bring then is uh, hamstringing the organization and the ability to bring in other talent. That, that's very expensive. And Rogers is not deep pocketed enough that they could add on parts and pieces if it turns out that he's not enough. No, and but they did. They said they had the money, and then economically, now they do have the money. Did it just the fact that we became a finalist? Does that make things a little bit different for the Jays? I don't do think, think so. The, the Jays have a young talent uh, nucleus anyway that. Uh, should be attractive to other players, whether or not they landed Otani. I'm really not sure that the Jays were uh, really a finalist for him anyway. Uh, as Mark was saying before, he was injured at the end of last year, and it was thought that that might take $100 million off of his asking price. Mm-hmm. Uh, the typical agent move at that point is you create real or phantom uh, competitors for his services to try and inflate that number. And so in this particular case, there was some amount of success by creating that Toronto might be a destination. It's a plausible destination. Uh, the Jays wouldn't have denied it was a destination. And what that allows then is for his management team to go to the Dodgers and say, if you really want him, you better make it so that somebody else doesn't swoop in. Uh, and that's partly why it went from $500 million, which was the speculated number, to $700 million. Call now, direct mail, and all those things. Say, don't they? We were be used, Moshi. Do you think we were part of a as a stunt to rack I, up that figure there? Yeah, I, I think that unfortunately Toronto was dangled here as just plausible enough that it would incentivize Los Angeles to up their offer. It was always speculated that he was going to end up on the West Coast. It, it, it's an extra five hours to fly from Toronto to Vancouver and then tack on the normal flight to, to Japan from there. He's known to like to, to go back to Japan after the season. Uh, he's very much a creature of habit. And being able to loosen up uh, in March and April and in September and October in Los Angeles is very different 
than loosening up in March and April and September and October in Toronto. I know it's done indoors anyway, but there's still that chill that can come into you when you have to walk outside in Toronto in, in the springtime and in the fall. Um, we know it, though. Look at how it brought our country together, though. It's amazing. It's also, I mean, you look at the power of sports. Economically, one name, one possibility made us forget our troubles for a while. It was worth it, though, Moshi. I know you're thrilled, but you got to admit, it did prove the power of sport. Oh, and that's the amazing thing with sports, is that if you take a look at, say, the Blue Jays, that's a franchise that's worth maybe a few billion dollars. More money than I can ever expect to see in my life, maybe more money than you can ever expect to see in your life. But when you take a look at how the Jays, the Leafs, the Raptors create these outsized responses, when you have companies like Walmart that are doing nearly a trillion dollars worth of sales a year, it's completely disproportionate. But sports does have that ability to create passion that just Walmart doesn't. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.